The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. So welcome everyone to this live recording of The Echo Chamber podcast. Very happy to be joined by our frequent guest, Alan van der Molen. International President at WE. Sir, you have quite attractive legs. I've never seen you in shorts before. Yeah, they are, but I try not to get carried away. That's good. Um, That's a good way to start. (laughs) Let's make a a neat segue from there (laughs) to your experience judging the Cannes PR Lions. Because a couple of years ago, you were quite critical about the Grand Prix winner. I was. But now you seem to have come 180. No, no, I haven't. Okay, no, that right. was a crap winner. Um, for sure. It was it was an advertising entry that won a, a lion in PR mm. and uh, won the Grand Prix. So no, I, I still stand by that. What, where, what, I, what, what I differ and where I owed my good friend uh, who chaired the jury that year, John Clinton, an apology was it, it's not the jury's fault that the ad agencies are entering better work. Mm. Um, because you know as a judge you're blind to who's entered the work mm-hmm. and all the entries are two-minute videos and you know advertising has the, the pedigree if you will in doing short emotive film so sitting in that seat changed my view to criticizing the jury to having some empathy um, for how the judging is done yeah do, do you worry though that these videos don't necessarily convey the depth and complexity of the best public relations campaigns. Yeah, I think I think it's a big concern, and I think I blogged on that a couple, three weeks ago. A blog you hated, by the way. I didn't hate. You no, know, you did. You, you said a, no, you said it wasn't one of my best. Yeah, that, that doesn't mean I hate it. It hurt, it hurt my feelings. I'm sorry. It did. Thank you. It's a sensitive time for me. Um, so. Look, I think it's really tough, but we're seeing the evolution of how PR lines are judged at Cannes. You know, we had, after two years ago, we had, you know, very strong pushback, not just from me, but, but from others. So last year, um, the jury tried to center judging on um, earned at the core. Mm-hmm. And this year, I don't really know how the judging was centered, to be honest with you. But, but I think that we need to, as much as I hate definitions, I, I think we need to evolve into um, the value of branded content and how branded content plays across the entire media ecosystem. And I think PR needs to start to be judged maybe as anything that communicates or sways stakeholders no matter where it starts and finishes. Because I think it's very hard to define where public relations starts and and advertising or direct or whatever begins with the exception of, of paid. I guess the, the issue in Cannes is that it, it's hard to put it into a box because the way you've described it, it would expand. Yeah, I think all, PR all work should, I think PR work, it, paid PR work should start to be entered in the advertising lines, right? Why not? Yeah. Well, I think maybe it is already. Why do you hate definitions? Uh, well, as, as, as the, an agency leader and as a business person, I don't want to get boxed in by a definition, right? Uh, I also hate definitions because the media ecosystem is, going, is undergoing so much dramatic change 
and the news hole is, is shrinking. We've seen a 50% decline in the number of paid journalists globally in the last decade. Mm -hmm. And we've only seen a third of that 50% filled by um, digital native journalists. And, and hiring in that space is topped out. So I think um, I would prefer to be without definition and just look at how work impacts brands and organizations and does what it's designed to do. And I would actually love to see um, you know, competition cross-discipline. Um, this gives us an opportunity to talk maybe a little bit about some of the broader industry issues that you have written about in some of your better blogs. Thank you. Um, in particular, uh, I enjoyed the one uh, you posted not that long ago about something you called Franken agencies, where, because we're seeing so many, well not so many, but we're seeing definitely this trend towards agencies combining and consolidating and merging. Um, now, is, is that innovation for you? No, consolidation is not innovation uh, by any stretch of the word. And I think that WPP, through the merger of Burson, Cohn, and Wolf, clearly playing defense. They had an agency that was stuck um, with low or no growth for a decade in Burson Marsteller. Um, they had an, a mid-size agency in Cohn, and Wolf that was a great performer. Um, was a growing agency, and you write a lot about the, the, the mid-size agencies and the opportunity in front of them, and I subscribe to that. But I think WPP was playing, you know, shareholder defense, and they slapped two agencies together, and, and they're hoping that Conan Wolf can revive Person, and I think I think that's a, a very flawed premise. Uh, I think that um, our friends at um, Omnicom are doing the same thing with the Omnicom PR group. Um, that's not innovation at all. That's that's trying to provide greater value to shareholders through consolidation and they're doing that in continental Europe and they've just done it recently in Southeast Asia by throwing Puerto Novelli, um, Fleshman, Hillard and, and, and Ketchum together. So no, I think that's playing defense. You mentioned the rise of the mid-size. I mean there was a time I think when the conventional wisdom was that the market would polarize around you know the big networks at one end, clients who want scale and, and, and lots of countries. Um, and, and the boutiques of the other clients who want that kind of close uh, service and attention and speed. And yet, we kind of have seen the opposite phenomenon in that the middle seems to have done extremely well. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I, th I think that um, if the middle is, quote, global, and I think this, that's a real distinction. Yeah, so so ha having a good presence in the United States, the United Kingdom, China, and India. Mm. Um, I think a mid-sized global today has an opportunity because I think that there is client fatigue um, within the holding companies. Um, because I think the holding companies remain shareholder-centric instead of client-centric. Um, and they're looking for economies of scale. And I think procurement hires the big guys because they can, the holding companies, because they can beat them up on price across discipline. But I think that is not client-centric. I think the boutiques can be crazy client-centric, but on a single market level. And increasingly, as clients want to innovate with boutiques, they see great ideas that they want to scale, and the boutiques are only in one country, so they can't scale an idea and enter the opportunity for mid-size because we can, by and large, fly underneath the radar of procurement, and we can become not necessarily the global AOR, but we can certainly become the preferred agency for innovation and for risk taking. And what's a large project for us 
is a few pennies in the bank for Omicom, for instance. And are you seeing that trend playing out for you at Wii? Uh, I would say right now we're we're in a transition from franchise to global network. Right. Right. So we've we've scaled in China through acquisition in the last tw uh, fifteen months. We've scaled in India through acquisition in about the last six months. We're acquisitive in the UK. We're really focused on scaling in the markets that we are that we think are critical to serving a global client base, and therefore moving away from like a multi-country agency to a global agency. So I think we're just on the front end of, of that evolution. And it's interesting that you're using acquisition um, as as one of the means to um, power that shift. And there, there was a time when, if you were an a small or, or mid-sized independent agency owner. You didn't have many options in terms of selling your agents. It was really one of the holding groups would emerge as a buyer. And now we've seen the holding groups have, for the most part, stopped buying PR agencies. And the buyers are bigger independents like yourselves and agencies like Finn Partners. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes private equity is involved, either on their own or, or, or through taking a stake in one of these bigger independents. Yeah. Um, do, you give, do you think that has... Um, I mean, in, in your conversations, I guess, with independent agency sellers, do you feel like there's, they're more interested in selling to another independent than they are to, for example, a big holding group? Uh, I think it depends. I think certainly the people that we've done deals with um, had, had a bias towards independence, uh, which I think is great because, you know, you, you get to keep your owner-entrepreneur mindset. You get, get to keep your innovation mindset. Yeah. I think there's um, a, a much more, let's say, laissez-faire attitude um, from the buyers when they're independent and when they're mid-sized. So I, I think that's a plus. Um, I also think that, as you said, the holding companies aren't buying um, PR firms at the moment. Um, and I think independents that are single market in independents, which we could almost term as boutique, if they want to grow, they need to have a, a larger network, and one of the avenues open to them is an independent or a mid-size acquiring them. Mm. Um, you mentioned the, the challenges facing the big agencies. Um, is this the reason that they've seemed to have stopped growing over the last couple of years? Um, or do you see macroeconomic factors at play as well? Um, Look, I think the large PR agencies, first of all, aren't all the same. Hmm. Um, I well, let's talk about the largest if you can. So, well, I, no, I can't. Um, I signed an NDA. You know that. Um, you guys can laugh. That's funny. Um, so, look, I think that the that the two largest agencies in our industry. Um, have done a great job of innovating over the last three to five years. And I think in the process now they're swallowing some of that innovation pain, right? So to, to be specific, they've added tons of creatives, they've added tons of planners, they've really tried to diversify their offer so they can play effectively across the entire media ecosystem. And as such, I think they've hurt their culture a bit and they've created kind of an identity crisis as to who their client base is and who their employee base is. So I think they're very natural now, let's say, naturally having a sorbet in between courses. So I think it's very natural at the top. I think the next level down, however, um, has stopped innovating. Mm. And, and they've stopped innovating because their owners have stopped putting money into them 
or their owners have decided, hey, we are going to consolidate because we're not going to bet on this PR horse anymore because we need to stick with our definition of PR, which is earned. And I think that's hurt the growth of kind of the next level down. And I think that's exactly what's happening to Omnicom um, PR agencies right now. Are you, is that we, are you also kind of making that sort of transformation in terms of the new types of skills and people that you're hiring? We are. I mean, I, right now, and, and internally we call this momentum, we've developed both um, a methodology and an organizing principle that's focused on creating brilliant branded content that can play anywhere in the media ecosystem. And we're, we're putting a lot of investment into insights, into analytics on the front end of this, so we can start to be a little bit more predictive in understanding where in the ecosystem we want to drop branded content. However, what we're really, really focused on is learning from kind of people who went a little bit before us and how not to um, hurt your culture, on how not to alienate your existing employees, on how not to alienate your existing clients, staying true to our core while at the same time understanding the marketplace in which we play, which is traditionally an earned media core, has evolved greatly, and if we don't evolve with it, then we're selling into a much smaller marketplace. So that was actually going to be my next question. When you're, when you're making that transformation, when agencies try and make that transformation, and they invest a lot in people and skills, and there's a lot of talk about how they can now work across media platforms, there's a lot less talk about what they're doing internally from a cultural perspective to ensure the agency remains um, place where all of its employees, or certainly the right employees, want to work? Look, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people at a lot of agencies, obviously, I'm a relative old man um, in the industry, so, you know, what I hear is, um, at a lot of places, an us and them culture has developed, and that us and them, us and them, not S and M, um, us and them culture has, my marketing person's over there having a heart attack right now. Um, you told me not to swear, you didn't tell me I couldn't make references. Anyway, we've seen this culture develop where you've got the creatives and the planners, so let's call them the higher level evolved animal and marketing services against us peons what, that do earn media. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying, and, and those peon Neanderthals are the people that are driving the revenue for the agency and driving the profit for the agency, so you've got one class of employee who's driving the work, who's driving the profit, who's being placed by management under greater pressure to develop more work with lesser resources while the investment's going into creative and planning. Mm. So you've got a real dichotomy and a real us and them um, culture in some of the larger agencies. And I, I think the trick to doing that is understanding from the beginning what the values are of your agency what the client base is that you want to serve and therefore how you can evolve your workforce versus having a revolution. And that's certainly what we're trying to do, but look, we've learned from others that have been in front of us and we're very, very conscious of trying to evolve versus, versus have a revolution. Now one of the reasons agencies, of course, are making their shifts is because there seems to be greater competitive pressure, right? Especially as they're trying to get access to these bigger uh, marketing budgets and that of course brings them into into competition, in theory at least, with ad agencies and, and digital shops and so on. Um, but we also hear a lot about another potential competitor, uh, that's by the rise of the management consultancies. 
Um, how seriously do you think the PR industry needs to take them? Not to. I, I think, look, the, the holding companies are getting their asses kicked. Uh, this is the first time I've sworn one. Um, I, I think they're, they're getting hurt because the, the management consultancies are driving performance marketing. And they're going into marketers and saying, hey, 50% of your advertising spend is missing the mark, and here's how you can better measure what you're doing, and here's how you can put more predictive analytics on the front end of it so it's better. And the management consultancies, in my mind, are trying to um, um, add in, let's say, executional capabilities through acquiring creative shops and maybe small ad agencies, a couple PR firms. Ernst & Young bought a crisis PR agency. Register Larkin. I think it was Deloitte. Right. Thank you. Deloitte did. So I think you're seeing a lot of what I would call buying downstream capability by the management consultancies. But they're going to have a real culture crash, clash, I think, because they've got the gearheads on one end and they've got the creatives on the other end. Right. And that's going to be a disaster. I yeah. think that'll be really fun to watch. Yeah. I think it's um, already happening. So I, I think that's, but I think that's hurting the holding companies because the brands then are going to the holding companies and saying, hey, Accenture said, we're wasting 50% of our ad spend. What's wrong with you guys? Yeah. And then you've got the holding companies playing defense, which results in consolidation, not innovation. Right? Yeah. So I think, I think that for agencies like mine, we play kind of under that radar, right? We're a $120 million more or less agency, 115. And we can play under that radar and make small bets in insights and analytics to start becoming increasingly predictive and starting to get our measurability around what we would call PR attribution better. Mm. So I think we're kind of going that pace, but I think that the, the big battle really is between mm -hmm. the, uh, the marketing services holding companies and, and the, the uh, yeah, and, and the management consultancy. Do, do you see a management consultancy acquiring a holding group? Because the numbers would appear to make sense, especially given the well, if there's some holding groups, look, may, maybe, but you'd have to have a pretty large risk appetite to buy three of the four of them because they're not performing very well at the moment, right? So that'd be a long-term strategic decision where your shareholders are willing to roll the dice. I mean, I think Publicis is the one holding company, and I think you and I have talked about this, that um, I watch very closely because of Sapient, and, and I think they arguably have the whole package. They've got the beauty of creative and a nice creative product and they've also got the advantage of some performance marketing metrics that if they can figure out how to take that to market together I think they're ones to watch. And just to digress a little bit, why do management consultancies want to get into execution? Surely they've got the best deal possible at the moment. For growth. Turn up, provide the strategy. And, and Share, the, shareholders measure success by growth. And, and is they, that not they growing enough their core business? I don't know. I'd have to look at it. I don't know. But that, that's, that's my presumption. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, uh, before I open up to questions, about uh, clients. Now, you said before that you are concerned. One of the things that worries you is that people um, at the top of the communications chain on the client side don't always appear to be in the room when the important decisions about a company's reputation are being made. And we've seen some high-profile examples of that. Is that something that still worries you? Uh, it is, because look, just decisions follow money. And a lot of the communications dollars have shifted into marketing budgets as the model for communications has gone from earned to paid. So as soon as the social platforms went to paid, the marketing folks are making more decisions around message, 
as well as distribution of message. And therefore, I think communicators, in a lot of instances, not all, um, are being relegated to the back room. I think, I think the exception is highly regulated industries. So I think the CCOs at the booze companies, the CCOs at um, technology companies that are going through privacy issues at the moment, um, I think the CCOs at um, pharma companies, I think at, at those kinds of clients, they still tend to be at the table. But I think in consumer goods companies and in, in the food industry in particular, um, I think they're not, the CCO jobs aren't carrying the same level of pro prominence that they've had. And I think therefore, um, let's say a focus on engagement and effective engagement um, is probably declined. Mm. So is, is the solution then for for agencies to, um, to to maybe sidestep the traditional comms client and, and attempt to sell to the marketing client instead? Well, no, because you don't want to alienate your core, right? It's the same with your core employee. I think the role of agencies now is to evolve through educating, I think, the, the CCO and the brand communicators about the evolution of the media ecosystem and what that means and equipping them to have a peer-to-peer -peer conversation with the CMO around things such as analytics and how to measure paid. But I, I think you've got to bring those things together versus take them apart. And that's certainly what we'd advise our clients is, you know, don't, don't view the CMO as competition for budget. You know, view it as codependency because increasingly in what was traditionally defined as the PR ecosystem is going to paid, so you need to kind of link those two things together. And is that is that a realistic ambition, you think, given the way that companies are structured and the kind of political fiefdoms you still see? Man, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, for agencies, it's a real debate we need to be involved in or we're going to see our budgets dry up. Mm -hmm. um, is there a purpose bandwagon? And are brands clambering aboard it? There's absolutely a purpose bandwagon. <coughs> um, I mean, look, I think you can, you can ferret out work that is based on values and, and long-term long and long-held corporate values mm -hmm. and that driving purpose work. Uh, Unilever comes to mind as a great example. Starbucks comes to mind as a great example, at least the Howard Schultz Starbucks, um, certainly in protecting farmers and having fair wages in, in farming communities. And on the Unilever front, you know, being very focused on their environmental footprint and putting purpose at the core of part of their marketing proposition and making sure their brands are, are accessible to all. Um, so I think those kinds of companies are doing it well. I think some companies um, that I don't really want to name because I'd rather stay positive for a change, um, I think some companies are doing it to play defense. And I think those will be ferreted out. And you see a lot of that work here at Cannes. I mean, one of the things I saw in judging was, you know, it's easy to, to make a two-minute film that's got, let's say, a stretch of brand purpose at it that makes a judge cry that, that they're going to vote on. That's very, very easy to do. So I do think there's a bit of a purpose bandwagon. However, I do think that uh, for purpose to be successful in the long term and to be sustainable, that there are two core stakeholder groups that really have to give a shit. That's two times. Um, was it? So um, the, the first group is investors. Mm -hmm. And the second group is customers. Okay. Because if neither one of those stakeholder groups care, then there's no money to support a purpose-driven agenda. So I think we really have to understand 
you know, beyond what's happening in society today, which I think it, where you're seeing a liberal knee-jerk reaction to a political shift to um, conservatives in power. And I think some brands are making the decision to say, hey, we're going to stand up without necessarily thinking through what is the shareholder or investor reaction to that and what is the, the customer reaction to that. I think employees kind of are third, but, but I really think for a purpose to take hold, investors and, uh, and customers need to be absolutely on the bandwagon. It, it's interesting you mentioned Unilever, of course they've done amazing work in terms of building their, their strategy around purpose, but the response from Unilever investors suggests that they don't care about purpose. Yeah, but the response from the chief executive officer is screw that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stay on a sustainable agenda because I believe for us to be a sustainable company, we need to make these changes. And we're going to make them all the way through the supply chain into the demand chain. And we're going to stay strong and we're not going to focus on our quarterly results. We're going to focus on our annual results and make sure those are, are turning over. So in, with that in mind, then, do you think it, it it requires a CEO, a CEO who's willing to say, actually, I don't care. The well, I, think, thing. I think it requires two things, right? I think the first thing is, I think it's much easier for privately held companies like a Mars to drive that agenda, or an owner-entrepreneur company where there's still significant equity held by the owner or by the family, much easier for those kinds of companies to drive change sure. because they're less dependent on the market. I also think in the case of Unilever, the larger proportion of their shareholders that are institutional shareholders, that's an easier um, conversation to have, mm. right? So if you've got institutional shareholders that are long-term investors, like you know CalPERS, for example, then it's much easier to have that focused discussion with the shareholder than trying to speak with a shitload of, of retail shareholders. That's your fault. Okay, um, last question before I open up. Um, what kind of agencies do you want to buy and where? Uh, look, we'd love to buy a consumer shop with some good um, analytics and creative in it in the United Kingdom. That's a that's, specific response. That's, Thank that's, you. That's number one. Well, come on. This is my this is my opportunity, right? That's We Communications, <laughs> Alan V. Um, yeah, that's, we're very, very interested in the UK. I know my colleagues in the United States are very interested in looking in New York and in San Francisco at the moment. Um, again, we're very focused on scaling in the five markets that we think are critical to the success of a mid-sized global agency. London, New York, San Francisco, India, China. Those five are where we're focused. All right, thank you. Um, do we have any questions at all for Alan? As you can see, he will answer anything. So, what do you think about Martin Sorrell's new uh, advertising plan, Next Generation? So the question is, what do you think about Martin Sorrell's new Next Generation Advertising Holding Group plan? Um, <laughs> Look, I think he's going to have a hard time finding things to buy right now. I think that he is in Cannes right now trying to do a little reputational work, uh, which I think is very smart. Um, I think he probably learned an, an important lesson, never fire your chauffeur, um, right? Uh, unless you've got a hush agreement with him or her. Um, I think he's going to have a hard time finding stuff to buy, but this is a very bright man. This is a guy who built our industry as we knew it not as we know it, and uh, he's got more energy than I do, and he's got 20 plus years on me, so I think you watch this space. Okay, any more? 
Oh yeah, please. You said there was a purpose bandwagon. Do you think there's going to be a bit of a backlash against that, or has that already begun? Is there? Well, so let me just. Is there? Is is there going to be a backlash against the purpose bandwagon? I think that um, just like the environmentalists did to greenwashing, let's say, 18 years ago, mm. around the turn of the millennium, where a lot of companies got beaten up for greenwashing, I think the potential is there, certainly. I, I do think the brands have gotten smart and looked at people who have done a good job, like the Unilever brands, to say, hey, we better not fake this. And I also think that employees are pretty smart now, it, for the most part in advising brands and, and their employers. So I think the, the risk is there. Do I expect to see like a big anti-purpose push at Can in the next couple of years? No. Do I expect to see more questions being asked about technology and the use of technology and the ethical use of technology? Absolutely. It, it's interesting. I was talking to um, the comms director from Amnesty International and I asked him what he thought about you know, all the purpose work here in Cannes, and he's here, and he said um, he felt brands were really just just jumping onto quite easy issues, um, you know, things that everyone can get behind, and not tackling the real problems like wealth in, income inequality, uh, which are, I think, a much harder thing when you're a, a massive corporation. Well, I think you have to ask yourself, you know, as a corporation, is that an issue where, A, it's going to make a demonstrative difference to my customers and my investors over a long period of time? And if so, then I'll play there, right? And Amnesty's got a you know much different agenda, right? But they're also here trying to raise money. Don't kid yourselves, right? I mean, their campaigns are funded two ways. Let's attack a big target and then get them to work with us, says the cynical PR guy. Um, and then they're also very interested, and this change has been, I think, within the last decade, maybe the last five years, looking to partner with brands to drive real sustainable change on issues that matter to both sides. Okay, excellent. Alan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, I think we have a winner of the curse word sweepstake as well. Someone did guess four, no? Oh, well, that's a shame. No winner. I thought it was very well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Relatively speaking. I don't think yeah. I pissed anybody <laughs> off, except for maybe Burson Marsteller. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe Omnicom. But they deserve it, you know? They, they should be innovating. They should absolutely be innovating, they're not. Absolutely, yeah. please do, yes. Steve from Eco and PRCA, thank you so much for supporting House of PR. Um, we're seeing a lot of we communications, you've got a great marketing team here. Um, is, it, is there a real advantage about being independent and being able to do that, or do you, does it really not matter? Are you giving the bigger networks to run for their money? While they cut back at camp. Well, look, I, look, I hope we are, right? Um, there's a huge advantage to being independent because you can have a longer term view, right? And, you know, this is my second independent and um, both owners have a long term vision of, of where they want to be and they also have a kind of belief in the core tenet of the industry of public relations where I think the holding companies are like we need to make money in marketing wherever we're going in marketing and that's perfectly fine it's a, it's a different point of view so I think there's a tremendous benefit to, to independence and I think you know there's also a benefit to have a very um, tight shareholding so yes I would say to your question 
independent agency head agrees that independent agencies are better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's the headline. Stay tuned for next year. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.